Good morning. If you please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 5. We continue this morning in our study of the Gospel of Luke. Last week, you'll remember, we covered that well-known story of the paralytic coming in through the roof to see Jesus. And Jesus says to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. Maybe not what the crowd was expecting in that moment, but that's exactly why Jesus came, to seek and save the lost. Uh, To not only grant the forgiveness of sins, but to achieve the forgiveness of sins by eventually going to the cross and giving his life as a ransom for many. But that statement causes quite the stir among the the Pharisees who had come from near and far and wide to see this Jesus character for themselves. And so they question in their hearts, uh, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Uh, Now the premise is correct. Right? That only God can forgive sin, and so uh, we can give them a gold star for that. But the conclusion that they draw, right, that Jesus, as a mere man, is therefore blaspheming by taking upon himself a prerogative that only belongs to God, well, that's mistaken because of what they fail to see, because of what they refuse to see, that Jesus is himself God. And so Jesus, in order to correct that false conclusion, uh, he heals the man's paralysis also. And so look at what he says in verse 24. uh, But that you may know, right? So that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. That's exactly what the paralytic does. He, He walks home. He's got his mattress tucked under his arm. Jesus miraculously heals him, right, once again demonstrating the authority that he has, the power that he has over disease. But he also thereby proves that what he said about having the authority and power to forgive sin, well, that's also true. And that's the main point of the story, right? That as God himself, Jesus has the authority and the power to forgive sin. Up to this point in the gospel, right, we've seen Jesus' authority and his power over demons and disease and illness and nature. But now, most significantly of all, right, we see his authority and his power to address man's greatest need, that we might have our sins forgiven. Jesus can forgive sin. But now, as readers of the gospel, right, we're following the storyline as Luke's laying it out here in these narratives, uh, there is a question that remains unanswered. Well, great, Jesus has the authority and the power to forgive sin, but what kind of people does Jesus save? Like, what if he only saves good people, upright people, well-respected people? Uh, What if I'm too bad? Like, sure, Jesus has the authority and the power to forgive sin, but uh, therefore he can save people like me. But does he save people like me? Like, does God forgive really bad people like me? Maybe some of us have asked a similar question in our hearts. And so in God's perfect wisdom, the very next story 
And not just in Luke's gospel, but also in Matthew's and Mark's, if you read their accounts, the very next story is about the call of a really bad person, Levi the tax collector. It's about how Jesus has come to save really bad people like Levi and his really bad friends. So look along as I read Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. This is the word that God has for you this morning, and this is the best part of the sermon. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Father, we hallow your name, for indeed you are a glorious God who created all things, and even today you sustain all things by the word of your power. Uh, We are but dust, we are feeble and sinful creatures, and We acknowledge that you do not owe it to us to reveal yourself to us. You could have left us completely in the dark. And yet you in your kind mercy have revealed yourself to us through your word. And so Father, as we turn to your word, and as we think about and we study your word, we ask that you would please show yourself to us so that we might know you better and love you more. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Uh, Give us, Father, ears to hear. And we ask all this in the name of your majestic Son. Amen. So as we study this narrative this morning, uh, I think I see four parts to this story, right? Like four things that are happening in this narrative. Uh, And so those four parts are going to serve us as the four points in our sermon. Uh, Part one, following We see Levi following Jesus. Part two, feasting. Levi throws a feast for Jesus and invites all his friends to the party. Part three, Pharisees. The Pharisees react to the feast, uh, totally not kosher to them. Part four, physician. Jesus responds to their objection by giving an analogy involving a physician. So following, feasting, Pharisees, physician, let's start with part one, following. Uh, Jesus calls Levi to be his disciple, and Levi follows. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we covered the story of Jesus healing the leper, cleansing the leper. And I made the point that unless we understand like how the first century Jewish society would have understood diseases like leprosy, Like, we just wouldn't get the intended impact of the story. Like, we as 21st century readers of the Bible, uh, we might read that story at face value and think, well, just another healing. This time it just happens to be a man with some skin disease. But then we'd be missing out on all of the, like, massive implications that Luke's original readers would have immediately picked up on. 
that Jesus, in healing this leper, by touching the leper, uh, he was not just healing a disease, but he was also taking an unclean man, a man who was completely cut off from society and separated from God. Uh, He was making an unclean man clean. Massive implications. And we talked about how that served us as a picture of the gospel. Well, it's a similar thing here with Jesus calling Levi in the sense that unless we understand the cultural and social implications of Levi being a tax collector, like we're just not going to get the intended impact of the story. Like the fact that Levi is a tax collector by trade, as opposed to being a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker, the fact that he is a tax collector, like that's basically the hinge on which this story is going to turn. And so before we start, we need to ask, like, what is the significance of Levi being a tax collector? I don't think it's an overstatement to say that, like, nobody in the history of mankind, past to present, man or woman, Christian or pagan, like, no human being has ever, like, truly enjoyed paying taxes. Like, yeah, we're supposed to pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, but, like, there's no, I don't know, deep rejoicing of the soul— when you see that money leave your bank account every April 15th. And there's, you know, you don't get like a warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart when you check the mailbox and there's a letter there from the IRS. And so just generally speaking, there's no love for taxes, there's no love for the collection of taxes, and there's no love for tax collectors. But back then, a first century Jewish society, it's not just that there was no love for tax collectors, It's that tax collectors were some of the most hated people in the entire society. Remember that the occupying force at this time was the Roman Empire. Uh, The Romans ruled a vast empire at this point in history. And of course, if you're going to run an empire, it's going to cost you some money. You've got to pay for it. Uh, You've got to tax the people under your dominion. And so they had all kinds of taxes. They had a poll tax and a land tax and an income tax and a a transportation tax, all for the purpose of financing their empire. But taxation, you can imagine, is quite the administrative task. Like for Rome, uh, to collect taxes from each of their provinces and each of their territories that they occupied. And so what the Romans did was rather than collect the taxes themselves, uh, they would farm out the collection of tax revenue to the local peoples. And so basically they would decide how much in tax revenues they needed from any given area, and then they would sell the right to collect taxes, tax franchises, uh, to whoever wanted to pay that amount, and then this tax collector would go and do the dirty work of actually collecting the taxes, uh, keeping any extra revenue as their own profit. And as long as Rome got what they wanted what they needed, well, they were happy. And so these tax collectors had Rome's authority to do basically whatever they needed to get that money. Uh, Like if people didn't pay them what they demanded, let's just say that they had some very convincing methods, right, backed by the power of Rome itself. And so tax collectors in first century Israel, well, they were hated by the Jewish people for at least two reasons. Uh, Number one, Uh, They were known for being dishonest, like crooked extortionists and cheats uh, because of the incentive structure, right? After a certain point, basically it's 100% commission. 
uh, there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of graft. There's a lot of abuse. And so they would overcharge and uh, they would extort and maybe even make up random taxes just to get that extra dollar. And so tax collectors were known for being very wealthy with their ill-gotten gains. Right? We just think of Zacchaeus, who we're going to meet later in this book. You also remember when we looked at the ministry of John the Baptist from Luke chapter 3. You remember what he said to the tax collectors when the tax collectors came to him in repentance. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to John the Baptist, Teacher, what shall we do? And John says to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. I wouldn't tell my kids to stop hitting each other if they weren't already hitting each other. And John the Baptist wouldn't tell tax collectors to stop collecting more than they're supposed to if they weren't already collecting more than they were supposed to. But the second reason tax collectors were hated was because they were working for Rome. Remember, these tax collectors were Jews by birth, but now they're working for the foreign occupiers. And so they were considered traitors to their people, disloyal to the nation, right? Self, sellouts uh, to Rome. They're partners with Gentiles. And so as a result, they're cut off from Jewish society. They're not allowed in the synagogue. They're considered unclean. And you can imagine the, the shame it would bring to your family if one of your kids becomes a tax collector. Like, hey, what's... Levi been up to. He's like, wow, <laughs> Levi. <laughs> he's, he's, in a, he's, he's got a finance job somewhere. Right? Nobody wants to talk about the fact that your kid is a tax collector. Uh, and so they're kind of like lepers in the sense that they're social outcasts. But the big difference, right? Lepers aren't lepers by choice, right? Nobody signs up to be a leper. The tax collectors chose their occupation. And so in that sense, they were even worse. Tax collectors were hated. They were reviled. They were social outcasts. And with regards to God, remember, they're not allowed in the synagogue. They would have been viewed as unforgivable and unredeemable. So now with all that context and background in mind, look again at verses 27 and 28. There's Levi. He's sitting at the tax booth at Capernaum. He's probably collecting tolls on that main road that would have passed through Capernaum, right? If you wanted to get your goods from east to west in that region, uh, you had to use that main highway. And Levi's job is to make sure that nobody gets by without having their goods inspected and taxed. Well, he's at work one day. Jesus sees him. Jesus says to him, follow me. And Levi leaves everything and follows him. Now, verses 27 and 28, they're like so matter-of-fact. Some of us might have this impression that like Jesus is just walking by and uh, Levi's sitting there. He's got no idea who Jesus is. But then Jesus says, follow me. And it's like Levi gets into this trance and he just starts blindly following Jesus. He's got like no idea who he is. He's got no idea where he's going. He's got no idea who he's following. But he's like, it's like the Pied Piper or something like that. But that's not what's going on. I mean, the gospel writers have obviously simplified this account to just kind of distill it into its essence. Jesus calls, Levi follows, right? That's the the basic of the story. And as we're going to see in a bit, the point of this narrative, the point of this story, like why this is in the gospel, it's not so much what happened. The point is who it happened to. 
Right? So the focus of this story is not so much on what happens when someone is effectually called by God, but rather it's this very idea that God would effectually call even a tax collector. So Luke and the other gospel writers, they just keep the account, what happens here, just really simple and matter of fact. Jesus calls, Levi follows. But for our sakes, just kind of filling in the gaps from the rest of Scripture, we need to remember that God's call unto salvation, it's never like hypnosis or like a mindless trance or like brainwashing. It's always accompanied by the gifts of faith and repentance. And so I think we can safely assume that Levi knows exactly who Jesus is. Remember, Jesus has done a lot in the area. I mean, just in this chapter, right, we've got the miraculous catch of fish, we've got the cleansing of the leper, we've got the healing of the paralytic. All of that is happening in or around Capernaum. And word of him, we're told, has reached every ear in the region. And so Levi's heard all the stories, not only about Jesus' healings and his miracles, but also presumably about his mission. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And Levi knew, oh, Levi knew that he was a sinner. And this we can definitely assume because of what Jesus says at the end of the story. I came to call sinners to repentance, of which Levi is obviously one. Levi knew that he was a sinner, that he was in need of salvation, but here he is sitting at the tax booth, and maybe he's thinking, how can a tax collector, a tax collector like me, How can I be forgiven? Along comes Jesus. He looks at Levi. Follow me. And we wouldn't blame Levi for doing one of those double takes where he kind of checks behind him to see if Jesus is talking to him or the person behind him. You You want me? But then we see the repentance and the faith that God has already granted to Levi manifesting itself in his immediate obedience. Levi just gets up and follows Jesus. He believes, by faith, that what Jesus had said about himself is true, that he really does have the authority and the power to forgive sin, that he really is the promised Messiah. And so when Jesus calls him, Levi believes, Levi repents, and follows Jesus. And look at that little detail that Luke adds in at the beginning of verse 28. And leaving everything. Levi left everything. Levi left his lucrative tax franchise. He left his livelihood. He left his lifestyle. And if you think about it, this is the kind of job that once you leave, you're done, right? Like someone else is going to take your tax franchise and you're not getting it back if you change your mind later. No one else is going to hire you. I mean, what respectable Jewish person is going to hire someone who has tax collector at the top of his resume? But there's no looking back. Levi leaves everything and follows Jesus, right? He is all in. I remember hearing a brother share his testimony recently. Uh, And I love how the brother put it. Uh, He said he heard the gospel, right? So he hears about the glorious salvation that Christ had to offer. But he's also well aware of the implications of the gospel for his life, right? Like what repentance looked like, like what he would have to leave behind, his former way of life. But he said, quote, it was easy math. 
It was easy math to leave behind the fleeting treasures of this world because faith gives us eyes to see Jesus as the pearl of great price who is worth any cost. Easy math. The things of the world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Point number one, following. Easy math for Levi to leave everything behind and follow Jesus. But let's not lose the impact, the the power behind these two relatively straightforward verses. I mean, this is remarkable. Jesus has just taken one of the most despised and hated men in Capernaum. Like, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that. And he has extended his grace even to him. So coming off the previous story, right, in which Jesus declares the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, well, here we find that he forgives the sins of even tax collectors like Levi. But the marvelous grace of our loving Lord, it doesn't stop there. Because not only does he forgive Levi's sins, he also sets Levi apart for a life of service to him. Life of service to him, not only as a disciple in general, but also as an apostle, one of the twelve. Maybe you know Levi better by his other name, Matthew. Lots of guys back then had two names. Simon is Peter. Thomas is Didymus. Uh, Joseph is Barnabas. Saul is Paul. Levi is Matthew. And so not only is he one of the twelve disciples, But you'll recognize he's also one of only four men in human history that the Holy Spirit used to write the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So just think about that. Here's a guy whose life was once marked by graft and extortion and is thus hated by everyone. And then one day Jesus calls him and he follows. And just like that, his legacy is no longer one of corruption and greed. His legacy is one of blessing and encouragement that his eyewitness account of the Lord has given to believers throughout church history. And so he goes from being a hated tax collector to a beloved gospel writer. How in the world does that happen? Well, it's a perfect illustration of Romans chapter 9. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God has mercy on whomever he wills. And in this case, the recipient of God's mercy happens to be the man who very well might have been the most despised, most hated, lowliest person in Capernaum. It's to that man that God shows his extravagant mercy, and it's through that man that God reveals that same mercy to generations of believers through the Gospel of Matthew. It's just a quick side application here. Next time you read Matthew's Gospel, just quickly remind yourself of who it is who wrote it. This is the wretched, hated tax collector. And then marvel at God's amazing mercy. And then marvel that God has shown that same mercy to a sinner like you. Point number one, following. Which brings us now to part two of this story, feasting 
verse 29, Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So Levi's called. Levi's saved. Levi's had his sins forgiven. And now he's like the woman of the well, right? Come and see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? Like he cannot keep it to himself. He cannot contain his newfound joy. And so he decides to throw this big party. Come, rejoice with me. And so in that sense, he's kind of like the prodigal son and the father at the same time, right? Because he's the prodigal son who's come home, but he's also at the same time the rejoicing father who wants to throw this big feast, right? Let's kill the fattened calf. He wants to celebrate the fact that Jesus has saved him. He wants to celebrate the fact that Jesus has called him to a new life. He just wants to celebrate Jesus. And so he throws this great feast in his house, and uh, Jesus is the special guest, He's the guest of honor. And he wants to invite anyone and everyone so that they can all know this same Jesus who has changed his life. But who are his friends? Like, who is going to accept his invitation? Remember, he's a tax collector. He would have been a social outcast. Uh, And so uh, no respectable member of society would have been his friend or even his associate. And so the only people he can invite are other tax collectors and other social outcasts. And so that's exactly who's at this feast. Look at verse 29. A large company of tax collectors and others. Here's another important cultural thing that we don't want to miss. uh, And that's the significance back then of uh, eating together, having a meal together. Uh, For Jesus to be reclining at table with these people, this isn't just like, you know, grab and go, like a, like a quick meal. This is a long feast. When it says reclining, you should uh, picture them literally lying down on the floor, like facing a low table, kind of leaning on one elbow and eating with the other hand. And so reclining at table with someone was a sign of association. It's a sign of friendship. And that's not only significant because Jesus is spending time with these tax collectors, though that's the point that the Pharisees are going to get really angry about, and that's our next point. But it's also significant, because think about this, the tax collectors get to spend time with Jesus. Remember what we said earlier, they were barred from the synagogues. They were not welcome in mainstream Judaism. And so uh, they hear about Jesus and maybe they even go see him when there's large crowds, when he's preaching by the lake or whatever it is. But in terms of like direct conversation, in terms of one-on-one access to Jesus, they probably thought they'd never have an opportunity. He's a man of God. We're like the scum of society. Nobody wants to be near us. We're never going to be able to spend time with him. But that's exactly what they get here. They get fellowship. They get friendship with the Son of God. Now, as we think about this scene, we ought to be careful about one thing. Let's not think that in any way that Jesus, by associating with these tax collectors and the like in this scene, that he's compromising or that he's sinning in any way. Uh, This is really similar to the encounter with the leper, right? And when he touches the leper, it's not that the leper makes him unclean, it's that he makes the leper clean. Well, in the same way, him being with these tax collectors, it's not that they make him unclean, it's that he makes them clean. 
Jesus was, Hebrews 7.26, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. And so you know that the conversation around that table, around that feast, it wouldn't have been the typical conversation of a gathering of tax collectors and sinners, uh, glorying in their sin and their unrighteousness. Now, we don't have a single word from this conversation recorded in the Gospels. But again, knowing what we know about Jesus and about his mission, where I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Right? We know what his mission is. We can be pretty confident that oh, they weren't just sitting around talking about the Mets. They are talking about the kingdom of God. Ah, the kingdom of God was for sinners like them. Even the worst of the worst, right, social outcasts that society wanted nothing to do with, those who had done horrible and atrocious things, those who had cheated and exploited their fellow countrymen for just a few bucks, sinners like them who would repent of their sin and turn to Christ, they could be forgiven. That's what they were talking about. Or they were talking about how the kingdom of God was for those who saw their need. And perhaps they, as those who had sinned in perhaps more egregious and visible and outward, outwardly manifest ways, uh, perhaps they felt that need more tangibly than most others. And how the kingdom of God calls them to give up their sin, including their greed and their extortion, to repent and follow him, just like Levi. And so thinking about this carefully, I think, helps us to avoid two pitfalls, right? One at either extreme. On one hand, we need to be careful that we don't use stories like this as like justification to uh, rationalize indulging in sin, participating in sin with unbelievers. Yep, going out for, for a night with the guys. Sure, it's a sinful environment, but it's trying to be like Jesus. Well, no, Jesus doesn't become one of the guys, uh, he was not in any way influenced by their sin. He was not in any way swayed by their unrighteousness. Instead, he met them where they were and ministered to them, offered salvation to them, preached repentance to them. On the other hand, we need to be careful that we not completely isolate ourselves as believers from the, the sinners around us, but instead have a heart for the lost similar to our Savior's. Kind of like what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5. Like, if we're not going to associate at all with uh, sinful unbelievers, well, we would have to go out of the world. No, God has called us to be a light in the midst of the darkness around us. Now, the perfect balance between those two extremes, of course, is Christ himself. Right? He is separated from sinners, and yet a friend of sinners. And we're called to be the same. Point number two feasting. Remember I said earlier that Levi's kind of simultaneously in the story playing the role of the prodigal son and the celebrating father? Well, if you're familiar with that parable, you'll know that there's another character, the older brother, angry at the grace and mercy being shown. And that brings us to part three of the story, Pharisees. You remember the Pharisees from last week, the uh, separate, separatist sect within Judaism. Like, they're all about their rules and their regulations, many of which they added to the Word of God. Uh, thinking by, that by keeping themselves separate 
uh, and pure, and by following these rules and regulations, they could kind of work their way to God. Well, the Pharisees already didn't like Jesus, but now they get word about this feast, that Jesus was at this feast, and oof, they don't like it one bit. So they go up to the disciples, probably afterwards, because there's no way they would have gone anywhere near Levi's house while all this is happening. And so they come up to the disciples afterwards and they, they grumble at them. What's going on here? Why are you all eating and drinking with these shady folks? What is he doing? Your leader, your teacher. You can't call yourself a teacher and be hanging around with people like that. Tax collectors and sinners. See that word sinners there at the end of verse 30? It's referring to like flagrantly wicked people. You know, the kind of people that the Pharisees would completely separate themselves from lest they become defiled. The kind of people that, at least in Pharisee thinking, just by staying away from them and not being like them, you could be right with God. That's who Jesus is hanging out with? We, we Pharisees, we're righteous people. We're not going anywhere near those people. But your teacher, what's he doing? And so they would mockingly call him, Luke 7.34, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Look at the Luke 15. This is the chapter with, that, that includes, among other parables, the parable of the prodigal son. Look at how that chapter opens. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And we know those folks, tax collectors and sinners. Same kinds of people as our story Verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, just like they're doing here in chapter 5. They grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Point number three, Pharisees, well, they absolutely hate that Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners, that he receives sinners and eats with them. Following feasting, Pharisees. That brings us to part four of our story, which is physicians. Jesus responds to the Pharisees by using this illustration, this analogy, this word picture involving a physician. Verses 31 and 32, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus' answer is absolutely brilliant. He starts with a simple kind of medical analogy. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Nowadays, we have our, I don't know, annual regular checkups and whatever. They say, ah, and they put that thing on your arm that really squeezes it tight to get your blood pressure and all that. Back then... They didn't have things like that. Like the only people who went to the doctor, the only people who would see the physician were the sick. And so verse 31 is like a self-evident statement. It's a statement that every Pharisee in town would have 100% agreed with. Yeah, that makes sense. Only the sick need a doctor. But then Jesus turns that around on them by drawing a parallel between physical realities 
and spiritual realities. If it's the physical sick who need a physical doctor, then it's the spiritually sick who need a spiritual doctor. And so he really traps them in their logic here because the Pharisees would acknowledge that tax collectors and sinners, that these people are obviously spiritually sick. As a matter of fact, they're so spiritually sick that we don't want anything to do with them. We need them, we need them to stay away from us lest we become sick ourselves. But the Pharisees also have to acknowledge that Jesus is a spiritual doctor. I mean, they just saw it with their very own eyes. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so put it all together. How can you fault a doctor for being with the sick? Isn't it the sick who need the doctor since he can heal them? Well, in the same way, how can you fault Jesus for being with sinners since Jesus can heal them? Here's how Ralph Davis puts it. Do you blame a doctor for being around sick folks? A plumber for cleaning out a sewer? A mechanic because he works with broken down vehicles? A mortician because he messes with corpses? If Jesus is a physician, where should he be but among the terminally ill? And so this feast, the resulting association with sinners... You realize it's not just like incidental. Like, well, look, look at that. We happen to be invited to the same party. No, this feast is like a microcosm of why Jesus came. Like his entire mission. That's like the consistent message of this gospel, the gospel of Luke. That Jesus' mission is to come to save and rescue people like that. You remember what he said about himself in Nazareth? Luke 4.18. Who did he come for? He came for the spiritually poor, the captives to sin, the blind, the sore oppressed. And we've said it over and over. Right? The thesis statement of the book, like the book summarized in one verse, is Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's who he came for. And then we have a similar mission statement recorded here in our verses. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, sinners, Christ died for us. Tax collectors, sinners, the spiritually sick, it's not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. Point number four, physicians. Following, feasting, Pharisees, physicians. I'll close by addressing the two categories of people that Jesus references here in verses 30 and 30, 31 and 32. So you've got the well and righteous and you've got the sick and sinners. Well and righteous people, sick and sinners people. First, the well and the righteous. You see, in verse 30 and 31 and 32, uh, Jesus isn't just making a point about the tax collectors and how he's come for them. He's simultaneously also making the point to the Pharisees about why he can't help them. 
Those who are well have no need for a physician. I have not come to call the righteous. Now we know that when Jesus says the righteous, he's not actually endorsing the Pharisees as righteous. He's not actually saying the Pharisees are right in God's eyes. That's why they don't need me. No, there's no, no one righteous, not one. This is simply referring to the fact that the Pharisees think that they're righteous. But here's the key. If you think that you're righteous, you're not going to realize that you need a savior. Right? Think about the medical analogy again. Right? This is like the person who's really sick. Like something really bad is going on in their body. But they don't realize it. Maybe because there's no obvious outward symptoms. And so the sickness is like ravaging their body, but they've got no idea. And so they never go and get the help that they need. And so it's not that they're healthy, it's that they think they're healthy. And so they never go to the physician to seek healing. Well, in the same way, you've got these Pharisees here, and they are really sick spiritually. We're going to see that more and more clearly in the weeks to come. Uh, but, like, it's really bad what's going on inside. But in their self-righteousness, in their self-justification, they just don't see it. They just don't realize it. Like, there's no obvious outward symptoms. Because outwardly, hey, listen, it's all about keeping these rules and regulations, the traditions of the elders, and we've got that down pat. We're certainly, certainly not like those tax collectors and those sinners over there. So their sin is destroying them, but they have no idea. And so they never go and get the help that they need. The Savior of the world is standing right before them, offering them salvation, but they reject it. We don't need you. And so this is a condemnation to them. But like with any rebuke in the scriptures, it also doubly serves as a gracious opportunity to repent. So friend, maybe you've never seen yourself as a sinner. Like you know in your head that you've sinned. You know in your head that you've done wrong. But you're certainly not as bad as those people, whatever the modern day equivalent of tax collectors would be. Do you think salvation and Jesus, uh, that's for those kinds of people. Not good, upright, moral people like me. Well, if that's you, the only thing I can do is to plead with you to acknowledge what the Bible says about you. You might be a relatively good person. You might be well-respected by your family and friends. You might be an upstanding member of the community in the eyes of men. But in the eyes of God, which is what actually matters, because he and he alone is our judge, in the eyes of God, you are a wretched sinner. You fall short of his glory. You are his enemy. You are a rebel against him who has grievously offended him with your sin. It's only when you realize that that you'll realize your need for a Savior. It's only when you realize your need for a Savior that you'll then cry out to him. And so to the well 
and righteous in the room, well, the first thing you need is to realize that you're not well or righteous at all. But to the sick and sinners, including perhaps some of you who thought you were well and righteous but now see your sin, our story for this morning is the best news in the entire world. Like Jesus has come for you. A broken sinner who realizes just how lost they are, who realizes that your life of sin has merited nothing but God's wrath and condemnation, and you realize that there is nothing you can do to save yourself. Jesus has come for sinners like you. That's why I tell you to look to Christ. Look to Christ and run to him. And I'm not just talking to unsaved people. I'm talking to those of you who are saved. Maybe you've been reminded afresh of your own unworthiness, your own unrighteousness, your own sinfulness. How even after years of being saved, you still find yourself falling short. Look to Christ, right? Look to Christ and run to him. Let not conscience make you linger nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And this he gives you. This he gives you just the Spirit's rising beam. Friends, there is nobody in this room beyond saving. There is nobody in this room who is so bad that the grace of God could not reach them. It's precisely like bad people. Bad people like tax collectors and sinners. Bad people like me and you for whom Jesus has come to die. This man is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Like that was an insult to Jesus on the lips of those who were too well and too righteous for a savior. But for those who are sick, for sinners... Friends, that's the most encouraging title in the world. Think about that. Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Sinners like me and sinners like you. Father, we thank you that even while we were rebels, even while we were spiritually dead, even while we were your enemies, you sent your son Jesus to die for us, to die for sinners like us, that we might be reconciled to you. You've demonstrated your love so clearly and so perfectly in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we pray that that glorious truth would encourage the hearts of your people as we cling to you and look to you as our only hope. And Father, we pray that that truth would strike somebody who is spiritually dead, who does not know you, that they would glory in that truth today and find salvation in Christ alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.